Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Welcome to Forward Guidance. It is Thursday, March 23rd. We are recording one day after Fed Chair Jay Powell raised interest rates by 25 basis points, signaled it may be the last one to come. So much to talk about the banking system. The turmoil continues, but is it over? Who knows? And I am joined by an all-star team, Joseph Wang, Chief Investment Officer of Monetary Macro, author at FedGuy.com, and Randy Woodward, Managing Director at Raymond James Financial. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And you guys, Randy is a super expert on regional banks. He's been doing this for decades, and we know there's a lot of excitement in regional banks, so you definitely want to tune in to listen to this. I've been doing this since 1988, and... You know, I, I just want to share my experience. That's all. First, let's just start off. What were your broad thoughts of the Federal Reserve's meeting yesterday in terms of the dot plot, the statement, and the press conference? Joseph, let's start with you then, Randy. So I think two things stood out to me. The first was that Chair Powell basically uh, was telling everyone that their deposits are guaranteed. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with how the U.S. works, you need an act of Congress to do that. That being said, once a bank Gets, goes into receivership and is taken over by the FDIC, uh, the branches of the executive government have some special powers. For example, when Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by the FDIC, uh, the government guaranteed all their deposits. Now, what Chair Powell is trying to say is that, so he can't literally guarantee everyone's deposits, but he's strongly hinting that if your bank goes under, your deposits are going to be safe. So in effect, he's trying to stop the banking panic. Um, the second thing that I thought was really interesting was that, well, he's making a rough calculation between how, uh, between rate hikes and how the regional bank panic is impacting the transmission of monetary policy. So Chair Powell is trying to slow the economy down by raising rates. And what you think is that when you raise interest rates, usually people face higher borrowing costs. And so they go and borrow less and spend less. Chair Powell was thinking that now, this banking panic might put a dampen on the willingness of banks to lend, so the supply of credit, and that might be equivalent to, let's say, maybe one or two rate hikes. It's totally, totally vague, not sure, but it has some effect. So he's, he's thinking that he might not need to do uh, many more, if any, more rate hikes, depending on how this regional bank thing shakes out. So that's, that's what I thought was super interesting. What about you guys? So the Federal Reserve raised 25 basis points. The top range is, for the Fed funds is now... 5% and the forward rates what the market is pricing is a 55% chance that there's no hike in May. So basically the hiking cycle is is over. Joseph, you and I have been very cautious to use the P word, the pivot word. I think the pivot is, we're going to be using that word a lot, lot more. Uh, also your, your view that Fed, uh, Powell was you know winking and nodding about guaranteeing bank deposits. Very interesting. My reading is he just saying that the banking system was sound, but uh, uh, that's a very interesting reading. And then, of course, the one of the most important quotes, Randy, I want to get your thoughts on, was with Joseph just referenced, was Powell saying, yeah, the credit contraction that we're likely expecting, that is equivalent to a rate hike, or it could be even more. Uh, that is very stunning. Randy, what were your thoughts? My very simple opinion is, is that when you raise rates 400, 450, 500, like that, it's, you know, the effects there, I don't know what, I mean, I don't see any reason to take it any higher. The only reason I can fathom is that they want a little more room because they know cuts are coming eventually, but they don't want to go back to zero bound. 
you know, they want some room. If I had to guess, they would love to just land at 2%, you know, landing it on a, a super carrier and then just stay there is where they'd really like to be. I don't think they want to go to zero bound again because we are seeing the ramifications of that. As I, you know, said over and over again in 20 and 21 that this zero bound and this Fed buying mortgages and crushing spreads is going to have future ramifications. We don't usually really understand. I didn't know what the ramifications were going to be back then. One is banks now are sitting on incredible amounts of unrealized losses. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means that it's an exposure that we did not see because inflation wasn't an issue yet. And we didn't know the Fed was going to rate, you know, hike rates 500 basis points. That's my opinion. And I think he just needs a little more time to hang out here so he can hopefully get some evidence that inflation is finally being tamed. And then we're going to see a pause and we'll go from there. That, Randy, is a key point of difference between you and Joseph. Uh, you agree, my reading is, with Chris Whalen, who said the Federal Reserve play, uh, is to blame for the fall of Silicon Valley Bank because of quantitative easing. They uh, caused all this money to flow in. It, it bought securities that then declined in value. Joseph, you are on the other side of the Silicon Valley Bank had horrible interest rate risk management, and you should let bad actors fail. And if any other banks have also bad interest rate management, you know maybe they should fail. Uh, you are against bailouts. You say it is you know on the responsibility of of, of the banking system. These are two very different views that I, I think are um, uh, very important to explore. Joseph, could you, could you outline your view about why you disagree, why you think the Federal Reserve is not to blame for the banking turmoil? Well, I think the Fed hikes rates and the Fed cuts rates, right? That's what the Fed does. And the job of banks is to manage around that. Um, we have over 4,000 banks and we have, I think, three or 4,000 credit unions. And when you look across the space, it seems like those who busted are those who are, one, exposed to very fragile industries like uh, <clears throat> exposed to industries that were um, very interest rate sensitive and were not doing very well, like tech and VC and crypto. So Signature Bank, um, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, these are all banks that are known for their connection with uh, the tech sector. So when interest rates rose, those tech sectors did poorly and uh, the banks are connected and did poorly as well. I, I don't think that surprises anyone. And, as far as, as far as I know, when I'm looking across the banks, it seems like everyone else is, is just fine. So that suggests to me that there's maybe something idiosyncratic going on, something about how the banks manage their exposure to different industries. Now, Silicon Valley Bank in particular is very badly managed in the sense that not just their asset side of their liability, and Randy makes really good points that when you have a lot of securities and rates go higher, you have a lot of unrealized losses. But there's also the liability aspect as well. So if you're a bank, you want to make sure that people don't all take their money out at the same time. And there are so many ways of doing this. A common way is to have, let's say, CDs where uh, the depositor can't take their money back until three months, six months, and so forth. Another very common way is to just have a diversified depositor base. You have a lot of retail depositors protected by 250,000 in FDIC insurance, so they have no reason to run. Or you can have depositors across different industries so that if you have one industry that takes a big hit, well, you don't go bust. But Silicon Valley Bank, basically highly concentrated in tech and over 90% uninsured. So it was a bank for people who uh, would 
be inclined to withdraw their deposits at the first hint of trouble. In contrast, when you look across the US, usually banks have about 50% of their deposits uninsured. So Silicon Valley Bank decided to make the, their depositor base uh, manage the deposits in a way that their depositor base was very vulnerable to runs. And I think that's on them. Now, the Fed certainly did not help. Um, and maybe if the Fed didn't hike 400 basis points, Silicon Valley Bank would still be here. Real quick, like maybe if the BTFB was invented on a Friday rather than a Monday, Silicon might still be here. No, I, I'm, sure, you know? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure they probably would be here. I mean, Very Lehman-esque to me. Yeah, uh, it's like they, it's like they were kind of late a day, right? And so think about all the people in Silicon Valley Bank. They're like, no, yeah. if only yeah. you came about like a few days earlier. But yeah. Um, but you, you, I think a bank has responsibility as well. So yeah. you, know, you, you got to manage around that. Right. Okay. And BTFP is the bank term funding programs yes. where banks can pledge government securities as collateral to uh, secure loans from the Federal Reserve for a duration of up to one year, and they can post it at par value. They can post a security that would trade at eighty dollars, let's just say, uh, and get a hundred dollar loan. So, you know, in some ways, very very generous to the banking system. Joseph, you are very articulately uh, laid out the case. The Federal Reserve is not to blame. Silicon Valley Bank they had bad risk management. Randy, why? Wh what's wrong with that case? Silicon Valley Bank they had you know a hundred billion dollars of deposits in inflows, and they put it in these risky. Uh, agency mortgage-backed securities that would decline in value rapidly if interest rates spiked, they took these risks. What is your response to, to that argument? Well, first off, that's not a risk. It's just, it's a, no financial, no community bank bank could, uh, you know, know that what they were going to do. And even if they knew, there's nothing you can do about it on the whole. You can mitigate, but on the whole, you've got to buy bonds they give you a spread if you're putting it in the investment portfolio. And by the way, it's the same on the loan portfolio. So really, let's just call it investing. You got to make a spread to whatever your your funding costs are. Um, so when I see a lot of that out there that, oh, well, they made risky loans. And this is, I think that's what really got me going really on this whole situation is I see very intelligent people out there. Let's call them out, Richard Fisher. Um, I, you know, this past couple of days ago over the weekend said, these banks have made bad investments, and that's just simply not the case. Let me try to explain. So, um, well, first off, what Joseph just said is seven hours worth of content. So <laughs> there's so much to talk about here. Obviously, we're not going to get it all in this, but all his topics and his thoughts are absolutely fantastic. A, a five-year treasury uh, has a duration of about four and a half years. Okay, Duration is just basically a measure of uh, interest rate sensitivity, which is what we're seeing in markets right now is that uh, uh, these banks invested in bonds that have certain durations. And if uh, rates go up, those bonds are going to feel a certain amount of loss, unrealized loss, by the way, uh, depending on how much duration they took. Uh, during 01, I think most of, not most of uh, uh, 2000 and 2001, the five-year traded under 1%, as low as about 30 basis points. That means that four and a half year duration product, if you bought it, was gonna probably be between 30 basis points and 100 basis points. You can't make a living on 30 basis points. It's not gonna work, okay? The portfolio that SVB sold, the AFS version, 20 billion, had a 3.5 year duration. 
and had a 1.79 book yield. Okay, that I'm telling you, gang, is very conservative. It it is probably on, you know, I would say, on all the portfolios I see, and this is again something that no one else gets to see, but only the people who may well actually. Not even bank CFOs, CEOs can see it because they can only see theirs. I can see many. My firm can see virtually all of them. And so we know what's going on underneath. I could tell you that 3.5 year duration in an AFS portfolio, I would be very happy with that as an advisor. You know, to, let me, to be sure everybody understands what I've done my whole career is I sell bonds to banks. I help them manage all these things that we're talking about, AFS portfolio, HTM portfolio. I help them manage that. I, I, I help them build it in a way that protects them from future fluctuation in interest rates. And, and we can get into avoiding credit risk, but we do that too. So I can tell you 3.5 is very good. They still took a $2 billion loss in that because it's a timing matter. You know, Fed has raised rates that raised it on the whole curve. We have inversions and all that, but the fact is, their you know their average investment rates are up three hundred you know basis points. No way to avoid that, unless you're forced to to sell it, and the BTFP program alleviates that. You don't have to sell. You can bring it to us, and we'll give you the money you need. AFS means available for sale. Part of where they. Uh, park their assets available for sale, their marketing yeah. on the market, held to maturity, they are not. Uh, I'm actually going to pull up the statistics so we can uh, uh, have the data on that. And Ra Randy, you are saying that... Uh, so, sorry, go ahead, Randy. No, give me a minute on it. Okay, yeah. so another misnomer. Now, Jack, Mustafa was great, but here's an extremely intelligent guy who doesn't manage a bank for portfolio's uh, investment portfolio under FASB accounting rules. AFS and HTM is just an accounting thing. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with hiding anything. Anybody out there that says hide, you know, HTM is hiding losses, they do not understand. Those losses are reported on 10Qs and 10Ks every single time. Stop it with that. It's nothing nefarious. It's an accounting measure, which is a measure of gap capital and tangible equity. Uh, what, it, what it was FASB was trying to do was give a little insight into maybe some of the underlying risk banks might have in extraordinary circumstances where they have to sell these securities. That's it, nothing's hidden, that's all it is. So you could more or less just put that to bed. It, it's an irrelevant thing to this current situation we have. So there you go. Right. And so I got the numbers in front of me. So as of year end 2022, Silicon Valley Bank had $26 billion of securities in its uh, available for sale portfolio. And uh, yeah, the duration you, you cited is correct. And then in its hold to maturity, it had $91 uh, billion that had a, a duration of 5.7 as of After. year end. And as of year end 2022, so yeah, After the duration the was lower. Yeah, right. because of negative convexity, duration increases. And duration is interest rate sensitivity related to maturity, but not the same thing. And roughly, correct me if I'm wrong, but a duration of three means that your portfolio of, of loans of assets declines 3% in value as interest rates rise by 1%. So if interest yeah. rate went from 1% to 2%, you have a duration of three, a $100 million portfolio, you'd lose 
uh, three million dollars. Joseph, you uh, wrote an excellent article on your uh, fantastic uh, blog, FedGuy.com. I think the name of it was called "Hidden to Maturity." And Randy just said HGM is not uh, to hide losses. So, so what do you think? No, Randy is exactly right. So the assets of a of a bank, say loans and securities, fluctuate basically uh, according to interest rates. So let's say you have $100 in par value of a mortgage or a treasury and the interest rates go up, the market value of that would decline. Not just that, but if you made a fixed rate loan to a corporation and then interest rates rose afterwards, uh, then the market value of that loan would also decline. So the assets of a bank balance sheet always fluctuate. The thing is that because of data limitations, uh, from the outside, you don't actually see that day to day. If you are a bank and you put your assets in available for sale, then that's marked to market quarterly. But if it's held to maturity, then it's it's never marked to market. Banks can, they can come to me on a daily basis and see exactly what their unrealized losses or gains are. We have a system that does that. So it, it, it Again, it's they're not they'll, now they'll report that quarterly or annually, but trust me, <laughs> I got plenty of calls. I'm going into uh, you know a board meeting. What what is today's unrealized gain or loss? Which, by the way, with the tenure coming down from four something to three and a half, has been alleviated to some degree. We're in such a small little world. What my industry does, there's no way you know there's nobody other than us could possibly know that that's possible. And that's why I'm here. Just as Randy noted, if you're an outsider, you don't actually see this. The bank sees this every day. But if you're an outsider, you don't actually see that. So it's opaque. And that's usually okay because we we expect the bank to do a good job making sure that they have enough liquidity to to manage their outflows, even though as outsiders, people who either deposit in the bank or own the bank stock don't see the fluctuations in in their asset values. Um, but if you're buying something that has no credit risk, even though the market value declines with higher interest rates, over time, the market value will converge towards par value uh, because eventually that $100 in treasury securities is going to pay $100 because the, the U.S. government has no credit risk. So as Randy suggested, you know, over time, these banks are going to heal. These unrealized losses will disappear and it will converge towards, um, towards par. So it, part of this is a timing issue. And maybe, um, as, as Randy suggested, um, having these emergency lending facilities is a way to buy a bit more time for these banks for their balance sheets to heal a little bit. You're absolutely right, Joseph. Very little credit risk. People are going to get paid back. Again, mortgage-backed securities, not the subprime CDOs from 2008. This is agency uh, explicit or implicit guarantee of the US government. Credit risk, you know, not really an issue. But you have that interest rate risk, and yeah, let's say you buy a Ginny May, and it goes from 100 to 78 dollars. You can still market on your book at a 100 dollars, but you do have there is a loss there. And when you get paid back, you you will get paid 100 dollars. But there's the opportunity cost of not being able to buy a Ginny May that now yields six percent instead of two percent, and that should be reflected. If I bought TLT in April 2020 at 170 dollars, and then last fall it's at 93 dollars, you know, in my brokerage account, that's a loss. But the banks don't have to do that, Randy. Tell me, tell me what I'm not what I'm missing. Well, it's not a loss to you unless you sell it, Jack. Okay, so you have to understand. You know, nothing's a loss. Nothing's a gain, by the way, right? How many times have I seen that? Oh, I, I, 
I made this much in the stock market this year. Well, did you sell everything? No. Well, you've made nothing. Okay. <laughs> Loss and made, unless recognized, are not a real thing. Okay. Um, on both of what Joseph said and what you just said there. So here's the situation when we talk about time is, and this is, this is the point I've been wanting to really get across to everybody. I've been talking about on Twitter is in March, 2020. Okay. We got, and by the way, there was, there was situations, you know, the mark, uh, I think we were heading into a recession in late 2019. I almost feel like 2020 basically ended that because now comes all these extraordinary efforts, both by the fed all central banks and the government's printing money, da, da, da. So March, 2020, my uh, clients have a lot of money to invest. And here comes the Fed and says, okay, we're going to take rates to zero very quickly. Not only are we going to do that, but we're also going to start buying trillions of mortgages, which means you got the biggest buyer ever to exist in the history of the market now putting their foot on uh, spreads. That means yields of those investments are going to come down. We're going to hold them there for two years. Um, we don't, you know, they, we don't know that for sure, but lo lower for longer. That's what he said. Uh, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. Thank you, somebody on Twitter who reminded me of that. What as a bank are you supposed to do? You have to figure that's going to be the case. So you're gonna you're gonna invest in some duration, you know. And so I go out and I and and you know when we talk about everybody thinks you know the. Uh, SVB was buying 30-year mortgages and they see 30-year as a final, oh my God, they bought 30-year. That's not, the duration is what matters. Uh, and they probably did not buy a bunch of 30-year paper based on what I saw in that AFS portfolio. But point being is, is any duration I buy in those period of time is at the lowest yields ever, okay? Now let's, let's understand this. Not only, okay, what I just said, rates to zero, mortgage spreads tightening. Guess what? The entirety of the United States mortgage market gets to refi their loans. And pretty much they all did, okay? That means the bank's assets, one of their main asset categories, not only on their lending side, but also in, on their, uh, my, my world, the portfolio side, all those assets are now repricing, okay? The entirety almost... I would guess 80% of all their assets repriced lowest rates in history. No way to avoid that. Also, by the same time, in March 2020, my frustration was, why are you buying mortgages? I know the prices are coming down. And let's just, I'm going to, I won't get into the weeds, but let's say prices are uh, on a certain coupon mortgage is 102. They start to get down to par, 100 cents on the dollar. My accounts are buying hand over fist. Great for me. Well, then all of a sudden, the Fed takes that price in like a week from 100 cents on the dollars to 105 cents on the dollar. Okay. That's cataclysmic movement. I mean, now that you just raised the price, lowered the yield dramatically for all my accounts who have a ton of money. And because of quantitative easing, because they were buying those things. So 100 to 105. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, all my mortgages, loans that I had out there repricing, all the loans I've been doing repricing, everything's repricing to because of what the Fed did. All right, you had to save the world with this pandemic. Okay, uh, why did you have to buy mortgages though? I don't under, be stimulative, we could, that's a whole nother conversation. But my guys had the money, then what happens? Then we get stimulus from the government. Now, 
we get a trillion plus dollars in deposits, if not more based on QE, and that's a function that jo uh, Joseph knows more about than I do. All I know is we got all these new deposits. I had banks in a two-year period of time double in size. Normally, they would grow about 5%, 10% each year. They doubled in size in two years. That means all those new assets are having to be priced, uh, uh, invested at the lowest rates in history. Fine, fine, fine. Everybody's like, well, they were warned. They were warned about higher rates. Bullshit. They weren't warned until way after the fact. They could have been warned at any time. It just doesn't matter. Rates go up 500 basis points. Now, all of those things are at unrealized losses. And now, on a delayed function, all my deposit rates, all my funding rates, all my all the uh, my ability to fund those assets because they have to be continually funded. All those rates are now going up. Okay, and this is it, and that's so. What I need then is time for my assets to reprice to the new prevailing rates, and I'm fine. I'll be fine. All your deposits are safe. They're good. We just need no panic because under any scenario in the history of the world, a bank, nobody can survive a bank run. So we have to make everybody realize community banking is very safe. And I will tell you guys, SVB, Signature Bank is not community banking. They're not even close to community banking. So just get that out. They are, they were, in my mind, if you really dig into it, they're probably closer to a hedge fund. So that's where we. That's why we stand now. So what's going to happen? I'm just telling you what's going to happen over the next year or two. We're going to get with time that the, the this situation's going to heal. The Fed's going to start cut rates. Both of those things are going to heal this unrealized gain loss situation, and hopefully they don't cut to zero. That they cut slowly, which all this means banks uh, uh, readjust pricing, bring back the uh, asset liability. Uh, you know, net interest margin back into something that's manageable, it'll be fine. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that U.S. Treasury yields surged higher last year. Right now, you can get a 4.8% yield on your cash with Treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying U.S. Treasuries is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity, so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 4.8% on your cash, go to public.com forward slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thank you, and let's get back to the episode. I think Randy makes a really good point. Silicon Valley Bank was kind of like a huge mortgage REIT, right? Except that mortgage REITs, they, they borrow in um, wholesale funding, let's say repo and buy agency-backed mortgages. These guys were borrowing and deposits, investing in mortgages, except they, unlike a mortgage rate, they didn't really do anything with their interest risk. But um, I think Randy makes a really good point about the net interest rate margins. So usually we think of higher interest rates as good for banks, right? So interest rates are higher. Usually um, 
so the deposits deposit rates are very low. They they don't. So if the Fed hikes to four percent interest rates, deposits still remain about let's say zero or one percent. So we usually think about higher interest rates as uh, widening the net interest margin of banks and increasing their interest income. But that's not the case if you are a bank who bought a whole lot of low yielding securities that uh, have a long tenor. So back in 2020, 2021, if you're a bank and you bought a whole bunch of mortgages and they have very low yields, <clears throat> then when interest rates increase, eventually you're gonna to have to pay your depositors more, right? But your yield on your mortgages, they, they don't really increase. They're an asset that doesn't mature. And because prepayments are so low, maybe they won't mature for, for some time. So in effect, if this continues, you can easily have a lot of banks uh, in negative interest rate margins, right? And that, that will bleed that will cause them to have operating losses and, and will, uh, I guess, re reframe their ability to create credit. That, that shouldn't happen, though, Joseph. I mean, it that that's actually probably Armageddon it, that, because ne negative interest margin means you're not making any money and the game's kind of over. It'll compress, you know, and, and so it, it, th that means, you know, that's not great, but it's, you know, we can survive, you know, and and when you say mature, Every dollar, when you, when you, when anybody in the world pays their mortgage, right? You got interest and you got principal. The amount of principal that you pay on your mortgage payment, you are maturing that amount of money. That amount of money that you just matured goes to the bank and they get to reinvest that at the higher prevailing rates. So, you know, I know so you mortgages know are, are amortizing. So right. um, eventually over time, uh, through your mortgage payments, the banks will receive that principal, those low yielding securities will pay down and the bank will have the opportunity to take that and reinvest in higher rate, higher mortgages. So like Randy mentioned, it, they just need time to heal, then they, they can keep their net interest margins healthy and they'll be in good shape to continue to create credit and support the economy. I just wanna say that, yeah, loans for Silicon Valley Bank really weren't the problem, at, at least on the most, you know, the, the, the last financial, unfortunately, you know, documents that they, they filed, you know, I think their capital call lending business, which was over half of their loan book, they had one default in the history of the entire business. It really was yeah. all about duration risk. Joseph, I know, I know you're an ex extremely polite guy and Randy is making you know, a very articulate argument, but there was a time, you know, a week ago where you said it's elementary, the interest rate risk mistakes that they made. I mean, you know, you, you, if, if you were someone who had a, you know, a, easy conception of interest rate risk, you would have hedged that book. Uh, why was the the interest rate hedging, uh, you know, so negligent, if that is an appropriate word to you? I mean, they didn't have a risk officer for, for most of last year. Uh, please go. And then Randy, jo Joseph, and then I want to hear your response, Randy. Yeah, sure. So I think from an accounting perspective, once you put something into held to maturity, you, you don't actually hedge that. So I think they made a corporate decision once upon a time to just well, they have a balance sheet of 210 billion. Uh, you know, more than half of that is in securities, and a whole bunch of those securities were in held to maturity. So, they were just kind of, I guess, they were made this corporate decision such that they uh, they didn't think interest rates would rise, or perhaps they didn't think that their depositors would run. Because the other side of this equation is that if nobody ran from Silicon Valley Bank, even if they had large unrealized losses, they'd still be alive with us, or they'd still be with us today. So. It does seem odd to me that you would have so much interest rate risk and not do anything about it. But from my what I understand, speaking with Randy, this is common practice among the regional banks and smaller banks is to not hedge their interest rate risk. It's the more of the GSIBs that do things like that, that, that hedge their interest rate risk.
Right, GCIB's a, a globally some, uh, systemically important banks. The the big uh, guys, J.P. Morgan, uh, um, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. Randy, all right. So it's spring, summer of 2020. These banks they buy these mortgage-backed securities. Do they take a lot of duration risk? That's fine. Jay Powell is saying lower for longer. We're not even thinking about thinking. About, but what about when the siren song, the, the call of oh, actually inflation is getting serious, hmm, transitory. We're going to start ta- tapering the balance sheet. What about let's say January of 2022? Mm-hmm. Why not put some some serious interest rate hedges on? As as Joseph said, why wasn't it negligent of Silicon Valley Bank to not put those hedges on? Okay, so uh, this is a, I'll give you a skin in the game answer first. Uh, if I uh, negotiate a hedge for my clients uh, with that would go through my derivatives desks, I will make a commission on that. Uh, so in my career. If it was wise to do so, I would be doing it because I'd be making money. Okay. And so would everybody else in my industry. So would all the derivatives desk, the guys, you know, so look, if, if they would be doing it, if they could, um, let me first say, okay. So if, and Joseph, I love you to death, man, but I got to, I'll push back to you on this one. You know, had they done this SVB would have survived. No way. No one can survive a run. End of story. Just, I don't care what you've done. There's no way to survive it. Even if, by the way, the BTFP program existed, they still would have failed because they had 49 billion deposits roll out. You know, they had, you know, uh, it, that was accelerating. They only have so much collateral to work with. At some point, the deposits outweigh your collateral and your borrowing capacity. The game's over. Okay. So, and so with hedging, Hedging is extremely complicated when you're dealing with uh, unknown cash flow in the entire uh, portfolio. Not only, like Joseph said, not only on your funding side, but on your asset side too, or on vice versa. But so that's extremely difficult. The more optionality there is in those cash flows, okay, with mortgages, because we all have the ability to call our mortgage by paying it off, and and it, the more you add to that, the more expensive those derivatives are going to be. And by the way, also at any point, if you guess wrong and you hedge for higher rates and rates go lower, now you really got a problem. Okay. There's no way to perfectly uh, on the whole manage this interest rate risk. This is look, community banking is no different than George Bailey's bank. It's the exact same model that has always existed. And it's always been an exposure that the, this system borrows short, lends long, and there's always going to be this mismatch uh, uh, exposure. We've just never had the violence. Okay, so let me tell you what the perfect hedge is. It costs you nothing. And this is what, we, what I've been talking about this whole time. The perfect hedge is, and this is my job, is to create consistent, predictable cash flow in your portfolio. That way, if rates go up, I have a certain amount of cash coming back that I can reinvest at the higher rates. I'll even give you a number. My my uh, uh, rule of thumb has always been, you know, and this was after probably 10 years of being in the business. I figured this out. I look at a guy's portfolio and I say, I want 60% of your cash coming principal coming back to you in three years. I think that's a really good uh, uh, way to do it that way. If rates go up, 
you're going to be okay. Now, let's say right now, I might go to those guys and say, you know what, um, you know, let's make that 40% of cash coming in. Because that means I'm going to lengthen my duration because I'm starting to feel like we know where rates are going to go. So that way, if rates go down, okay, I still have to reinvest those cash flow at lower rates, but not as much as before. But I, what I'm doing is ebbing and flowing with wherever rates may go. That's the perfect hedge. That's the best hedge you can do. Interest rate hedges on certain sectors of lending are possible, and they can be perfectly matched. But that's about it. Not on the whole. No, guys, there's no such thing. It reminds me of our discussion with Howie Bassman, Jack. I recall that that the spread between mortgages and treasuries that can that's unhedgeable. So, and as, as we've known, that spread has been volatile over the past couple of years. So, have, even if those guys put on hedges, they, they would have it would have been a difficult thing to do, as Randy mentioned. It's a it's a mitigator, but it's not a savior. You know, and, uh, and, and it compresses NIM, and so when you're you're already having compression in NIM back in 20, you know, net interest margin in, in 2021, you're already having to go with, okay, well, I'm only going to make hundred basis points. I'm not used to that. That's pretty low. My ROA is going, return on assets are going down. Wait, you want me to pay to, that's even going to kill that even more. Um, and right. we don't know that that's going to happen. And Jack, when you get, as soon as they say, we're going to raise rates, guess how much your derivatives are going to cost now? More expensive and probably going to go yeah. up. Move index, yeah. right, Randy? Yeah. I, I'm going to sort of be a little harsher than I that I would just for the sake of argument. It's not my fault that I didn't buy car insurance. Like, it's it's too expensive. Yeah, but your the value of your car is predictable. Okay, mm -hmm. the value of a mortgage-backed security or any interest rate-sensitive uh, uh, asset is unknown. So that that there's there's another level of option that we don't know. Thus, the derivative is ghastly more expensive because we have to make up for the unknowns. Right. So so Randy, you said you like it when clients can get sixty percent of their cash flow within the first three years. It's a shame that you you know someone like you weren't being listened to by by Silicon Valley Bank because I'm looking at their hold to maturity portfolio and 86 billion dollars of their you know 91 billion dollar hold to maturity portfolio had a maturity of over 10 years. I know duration matters much more than, than no, no, no. I mean no, it it matters incredibly. <laughs> it not not just a little like the, the maturity of their assets. I'm assuming let's say they're mostly mortgages is incredibly irrelevant. It, it it's the duration that matters. And I think you looked it up when we talked the other day, their duration of that HDM portfolio before the Fed hiked rates was four years. Again, that is, that's fair. That's pretty much middle of the road for all banks in the United States. Or I would say most banks in the United States. And now it's six. Unfortunately, I can also tell you that that's probably on par for a lot of the banks in the United States. So yeah, not, not, they, they were doing, there was nothing weird in their portfolios at all. I promise you. Joseph, I want to get your thoughts as well as I'll just throw out the arguments you know, on Randy's side of someone has to bear the losses. When the Federal Reserve raises losses, it's imposing losses on itself, which it can it will you know not realize, but because it owns so many treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and it's it's paying uh, the reverse repo rate very you know the overnight rate. Um, but it's going to impose losses on some banks. And if Silicon Valley Bank had hedged its risk with Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs would have had that risk. They would have sold that risk to someone else. Someone's going to be end up holding, holding the, you know, the bag of rotten apples. 
so it's systemic. Uh, what do you say to that as well as just you know Randy's general argument? No, that's that's how monetary policy works. It's one of the channels. You raise interest rates, you impose losses. There's a negative wealth effect, and someone somewhere has less wealth to spend. Uh, we saw that happen with crypto. We saw that happen with many mem stocks. So you hike rates. Someone somewhere has less money to spend, and maybe that decreases demand. Maybe that slows down inflation. I think Randy makes very good points on the asset side of the bank's portfolio. It's hard to hedge that, and especially if you are a community bank, maybe you don't, you're not used to used to doing something like that. Um, so I think one thing that I would fault on these smaller banks would be how they manage their liabilities. Now, broadly speaking, the community banks are have a deposit base that's insured, so they don't really have to worry about what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, so I think SVB really is, as Randy suggested, an outlier. They were running themselves not so much like a bank, but more like a giant investment fund. But I'm actually really curious about um, Randy's perception as to whether or not what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is changing the behaviors of any of the uh, medium or smaller banks. Are they thinking about their assets differently? Are they thinking about their decision to hedge or not hedge differently? Well, first off, I, I would say I found it. I find it really interesting the clairvoyance everyone has at the risk of having a high percentage of uninsured deposits on your liability side. Uh, prior to Silicon Valley Bank, in the history of banking, no one's ever, ever, ever commented on that. No one's ever saw that as a problem. So. I, I, yet everybody's like, well, there you go. They, they should have known. No one. Come on. And there's a lot of other banks that have similar percentages. Uh, they were the highest, no doubt. And I think that was just a good way to say, look, it's their fault. Um, I think their faults lie in other places. But even so, and, and Joseph, I think you said this yesterday, that on the whole, 50% of deposits are uninsured. Okay, so is 50% better than 85%? I mean, if the 50% disappears, you're still dead. So I, I you know, I, I, I want to get well, away. I'd add something else. The people, the banks that have the highest percentage of, on average, on highest percentage of uninsured deposits, they are the GSIP. So they are the too big to fail. So yeah, you yeah, kind yeah. of have everyone going there and being, whatever, uninsured, yeah. the government will bail me out. Banks that have the highest percent of deposits that are insured are the smaller banks. There's some bigger banks out there uh, promoting the fact that, hey, we don't have that uninsured risk because 95% of our depositors are actually insured, I mean, under 250K, okay? And, okay, great, that's great. But let me just tell you something. If you, if you look at history, if you look at, you know, I don't know what, let, let's just say uh, IndyMac's a good example. Now, you could say what you want about their assets, but it took one comment from one senator to kill IndyMac in a heartbeat, okay? I forget what center it was. He came out and said something to the fact, uh, I'm concerned about the level of subprime lending that IndyMac's been doing. Done, over, closed the doors, that was it, okay? There was a run on the bank. Didn't matter if it was uninsured, insured. Your mom went over there. Everybody went and took their money out, game over. My point is, you can never know what comment or what event can cause a run on a bank. So. That's why I'm, I'm pointing out this uninsured thing. Is that going to be looked at? Yeah, they have to now because everybody's now all of a sudden going to look at it. Yeah, okay, so that's a thing, whatever. You asked a specific question, Joseph, about hedging. Most certainly it's going to be looked at. Most certainly they're going to um, 
start to engage us and say, you know, this, that, but still, on the other hand, it's not going to become pervasive. It's not going to be this, uh, this holy grail of, it's just, it cannot be. It's not going to exist like that. Do I do think, Joseph, if you're right, though, let, one more thing. I think they're going to be a little bit more careful about the uh, level of on-demand deposits they have, right? So when you mentioned CDs and other forms of, uh, of funding, even though they're more expensive. So now remember, you know, we're, we're in, oh, you know, 2000, 2021, da, da, da. When you do those uh, term funding, meaning you lock in funding for two, three, four, five, six, seven years, whatever, in CDs, you know, you're, you're stuck with that too. And you're in an environment where you're like, can rates go even lower? That's bad because now I'm stuck with that, you know, whatever that could, shit, could have been 2%. And if all of a sudden now any investment I could get my hands on is 1%, now I'm mismatched again. I'm on a negative NIM on those amount of dollars. So, but I do think you're absolutely right. I think people, that's where they're going to pay more attention is, can I manage my, uh, my, uh, you know, my, my, my liability funding a little better? So, you know, we're getting, I'm not, we're going to get into this, but I guarantee it, what people are probably going to be looking at is issuing callable CDs. If I issue a CD and it's got a one-year call, in one year, if rates are lower, I can say, hey, uh, here's your money back. And if you want to, instead of 5%, if you want another CD in the same term or whatever, it's going to be 4%. Then I'm going to call it again the next year. Now it's three, now it's two. That gives them the ability to lower their funding costs as rates go down. That is the beauty of this PT, this new facility is every time it goes down, uh, I have the ability to call it the, in, in my favor as the borrower and say, hey, I want to lower my rate. I want to lower my rate. I want to lower my rate. Because you know I'm the one borrowing it, so it's it's a type of call. That's that's the kind of stuff they're going to look at is is how can I make my that's such a good point, Joseph. How can I make my interest rate sensitivity on my liability side more robust? Okay, I know I, I know Randy's helping me do it on my uh, uh, asset side in managing the cash flow of my portfolio, but how can I manage the cash flow, which is essentially what it is? on my borrowing funding side. And, and I, that's where I think the attention will go more so than hedging. So it would be better if, if a bank were funded with long-term issues of corporate bonds, Goldman Sachs issues a 10-year bond. It's more expensive than you know non-interest bearing deposits, but it's safer because you have to have it locked in. If I lock in my funding and all of a sudden, you know, do a 10-year fixed funding at 5% and all of a sudden rates go to 2%, no, that's, that's a negative. Right, but it's a positive if rates go from zero percent to five percent. So it's still right. Yeah, but you can't make that guess. A bank is not in the game of guessing where rates are going. They're in the game of trying to create a robust cash flow so they can ebb and flow where rates are going. They're not. They are. Not, that is not their business to bet where rates are going. So a callable CD, for example, let's say I invested in a callable CD today at five percent. Then if rates continue to go higher, the bank is happy because, well, they don't have to pay me anymore. But if rates go down, the bank can buy that CD back from me, right? Let's say rates mm -hmm. go back to zero. And then now, poof, the bank doesn't have to pay me 5%. They bought that CD back. They can pay me uh, 0% if they want. So it's a, it's a good idea uh, where the bank can uh, manage their liabilities and also, also 
because it's a CD, I can't take it back whenever I want. The bank has discretion to do that. So they're, they're not afraid of runs. It's a, it's a easier way to manage right. their liabilities and interest yeah. rate. Right. And uh, Joseph, the chart that we put up earlier from, from fedguide.com showing how uh, it's the bigger banks that have the uh, higher percentage of uninsured deposits that would be more prone to, to bank runs. That, that is correct. You're absolutely correct in the macro sense. But I think it's the case that the banks that have 80%, 90% uninsured deposits are not JP Morgan and Bank of America. I think Bank of America is something like 30%, you know, these, these consumer banks. Those are you know, specialty banks that uh, bank to large businesses and funds like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank. And I think First Republic, I don't think it was 90%, but a lot large percentage of their deposit base was uh, 80%. So, you know, Randy, what, how, how big, you know, we know what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. We know what happened to Signature Bank. What do you think is the risk uh, that more banks fail? And I, I suppose that, you know, the bank really in question now is First Republic that had a large percentage of uninsured right. deposits that there was, you know, a minor bank run. The bank, the bank's stock uh, collapsed. It's secured funding from the federal home loan bank right. for uh, posting its mortgages as collateral. Interestingly, it uh, made use of the FHLB. Excuse me, it made use of the BTFP as well as the discount window, but it didn't have as many securities as a percentage of its whole book, uh, like right. Silicon Valley Bank. So, so Randy, what would you say is the health of the banking system now? How do you see things going forward with First Republic, all the issues I just mentioned, as well as the other banks? Okay. So a good way to answer that, let's talk about uh, First Republic, PacWest, who are experiencing issues. Um, I'm going to assume, I'm pro I, I would have to guess I'm probably right on this, in that they're fine. It's a normal community bank, da-da-da. What is their problem? Well, the problem is, well, twofold here. One is that somebody somewhere when Silicon Valley you know, had its problems, immediately said, oh, wait a minute, there's the issue. They have a high level of uninsured deposits which has never been a problem for the history of banking. I mean, all of a sudden, oh, well, no, that's a problem now. And they do a lot of VC and tech. So you take like PacWest, I'm not even sure where First Republic is. I think they're in California too. Okay, wait a minute. Oh, I see. You know who's at risk here? Who has a high percentage of uninsured deposits in Tech Valley or exposed to that? Oh, there they are, dun, dun, sell. Okay, that's it. And this is what I said earlier is that, uh, it, it, a bank runs can start with the most, you know, innocuous comment from somebody of of authority, and all of a sudden you have a bank run. And so that I I would have to guess. I know all my banks are fine. All my banks, you know, yeah, they have this exposure, but but it'll with time, it'll be fine. So that's what I think you're seeing there. And and right now, I guess the regulators are like you know, and Fed, and they're trying to figure out how to, they probably see the same thing. That's why they haven't been forced merged with anybody. That's why they haven't been taken over by the FDIC, because they know, God, these guys are fine. We just got to find a way to get people to calm down. And that was the point of the FP, uh, F, BFTP. Right. FDIC, and so when you say these guys are fine, uh, just an example of First Republic, stock fell from you know, over 100 to now trading at $12. And, crazy. Uh, you know, right. I can't quite, say go and invest in that because quite sharply, who the hell yeah. knows? You know, right, I, as we fall, not, right? The, the deposit could be fine. The bondholders could be fine. The bank will still exist. Maybe it doesn't have to be taken over. But when you have a $50 billion outflow of close to zero cost deposits, and that has to be replaced by borrowing from the FHLB, the Federal Reserve, and JP Morgan, and you know, all of the other banks, that it makes sense why the stock is going to make less money. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. If, if Mr. Rogers had a bank, he'd still have the same exposure. 
you know, the, you know, it, it's just everybody's got this exposure. And, you know, I kind of, you know, if, if if again, if if I my assumptions are right that, you know, FRC and, and PacWest are fine. This is a shame, man. This is really bad. It's bad for a lot of people, a lot of investors. Uh, it's just just not good. It, it was unnecessary. And I think, you know, look, if I wanted to be a conspiracy theorist, my opinion is that the powers that be with Fed, the Treasury, whoever the, the you know, FHLB regulators, they needed to point to something to say, look what you did to yourself. In my opinion, now actually they're exposed because, you know, they have all these losses, unreal losses from what you've did, you know, from, you know, all the last three years. It's an exposure that you subjected them to. Um, again, that would be assuming that SVB doesn't have anything else going on, which I think they might. And I think that's why the, 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 the rats were fleeing the ship. Joseph? I think Randy makes a really good point about a bank run being in part psychological. So like we discussed earlier, like if you work at an investment bank that serves a bank like Randy, or if, if you're the bank's management, every day you can see the asset values of the bank. But from an outside perspective, the depositors, they don't know. All they do, all they do is that they see something bad happen with Silicon Valley Bank and they get scared. Now, one thing that we should note is that the banks that are having a lot of trouble right now, First Republic and Westpac, those are all California banks. So what could be happening is that, you know, someone knows someone and they, they, they chat with each other and they get scared. So in that part of the country, there seems to be concern among, spreading among the public. And so they're, they're uh, to be safe, they're going to shoot first and ask questions later. Yep, that's right. But that seems very much to be regional, as Randy mentioned. And, and Randy's based on the East Coast. Everything uh, outside of that uh, California region seems to be okay. If you... If you are driving to work or going to see your grandma or something, and you drive past a bank branch, any bank branch in the history of man, and you see a line out the door, once you've confirmed they're not giving out donuts, you are going to get your money out of there as fast as possible. And with smartphones these days, which, by the way, other people made the joke I did too, you know, apparently, you know, Yellen does not have a smartphone because she doesn't get how swiftly you know, deposits can be taken out of your bank now. It is a new world. It's and it means the the run can happen a lot faster, a lot more intensely than it ever could in history. And you know, that's a little bit of a problem. You know, that to your point, I think Credit Suisse was blaming social media for offending the uh, huge bank run in Credit Suisse that forced them to collapse basically over the weekend. So, you know, people have smartphones, inflation up. Uh, information passes quickly and everyone can just log in and wire their money out really easily. So uh, there does seem to be uh, some, some aspect of this. My, my, you know, my mom obviously knows I, I deal with strictly banks for the most part. And she, about an hour after Silicon Valley bank came out the news, she, Oh my God, is this going to affect your business? I'm like, Oh God, mom, you know, turn off social media, turn off the TV. You know, it's, it's all going to be okay. The other thing that infuriates me is that you have financial media out there and, you know, on TV, you know, one guy in particular who names his dog Nvidia saying that all these banks bought bad ass assets. And, and then it worries mom and dads and, and grandmas because they're at home with CNBC on and they hear that and they panic. It's and it's it's irresponsible to say that because it's incredibly not true. You're flaming the, the 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 flames of panic, 
and and you're doing so from an uneducated, uh, unknowing uh, platform. Um, but you think it's going to get you clicks and tweets and retweets, so that's what you do. It's incredibly irresponsible for that kind of behavior, and I see that throughout financial media and on uh, FinTwit. It, it, it's and that's why I'm fighting against it because don't do this to yourselves. It's unnecessary. You know, community banking is good. People out there going, well, we just need to go to four big banks, or we just need to go to government banking. That's ridiculous. You have no idea what community banking is really about until you're on the inside of it like I am and really see it coast to coast, how important it is for community banks to exist. What what about the uh, rationality of irrational behavior? If you see a a line outside a bank and you know they're not selling donuts, even if you... you know that the assets of the bank are, are safe, uh, the bank is solvent. Even if you have less than uh, a quarter million dollars, the uh, limit yeah. on FDIC insurance, mm-hmm. you 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 get up in a frenzy. And then someone says, oh, oh, Jack is up in a frenzy. I should go up in a frenzy too. And then this cascade feeds on itself. And yes, everyone in Silicon Valley is on Twitter all the, all the time, very plugged in. You're probably more familiar with uh, how to withdraw money with their phone than uh, you know, yeah. some people on the, the East Coast. I totally have a comment on that. I'll, I'll do it really quickly because it's, it's something we should have another podcast about. But look, I'll do it real fast. Bernanke's essays on the Great Depression came down to, t- to two things that could solve the problem. We cannot have the visuals of what you said uh, of irrational behavior. If I see a visual of a soup line, I'm probably going to irrationally hunker down. If I see the visual of a crashing stock market, even if I don't have any stocks, that visual is going to cause me to be irrationally frugal. And that is what that was. Bernanke's sort of the summary of his his uh, uh, studies on the Great Depression, and that is why I believe Bernanke, when he took over, said, "We are going to manage markets. We are going to do forward guidance. We're going to do interviews. We're going to do everything we can to prevent the visuals of ever occurring that something's wrong. Because if we if we allow those visuals to happen, people will irrationally panic." And I think that's what they're still – and the problem with that is, is that the deeper you get into that, I mean, that is the Fed put. That is moral hazard. That is a problem is that everybody's relying on you to don't let me see bad things. And as that goes on, the bad things that should have happened, at least in a managed way, are not happening, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. No, I think that's absolutely true. Um, but – so – and we're kind of seeing this play out right now, right? So Silicon Valley Bank uh, went bust. Now everyone is hyper concerned about the asset portfolio of their banks and whether or not the banks have a lot of insurance, uh, whether or not they have a lot of um, uh, uninsured deposits. So there is that feedback mechanism that that's having at play now. And it's it's good though that we have bad things happen every now and then. That's how we know that there are things that we need to be careful about, need to avoid, and that's how we can fix the system. I think. Uh... I think what you're going to find out in the end game is that I've, 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 you know, I mean, this is sort of clandestine, but, you know, there are people on Twitter in the know, you know, I am one of those people that are in the know about my little world. And somebody sent me something kind of showing me the flow of money that was around Silicon Valley Bank. I think there's more interesting things to come. And I think what you're going to find out is it had absolutely nothing to do with uninsured deposits. It's going to be about things that we were unaware of that 
um, that we just didn't know existed. And it's going to hopefully make people realize, you know what, my deposits are fine. You know, and what it has done, though, Joseph, and this is something that I think uh, you'll appreciate, uh, is that I have a guy, a friend of mine who's a big home builder and multifamily, single and all that. It, with what's going on, and he's on my email uh, uh, blog, he called his bank and said, tell me about the losses in your AFS and HTM portfolio. He is a large depositor. That is why we're not insuring him. That was the, that's the spirit of insuring up to a certain amount is if you're going to have more than that, we need you to be invested in your bank and asking your directors and your contacts, hey, tell me about this risk or that risk. You know, I'm going to go to your annual meeting. I'm going to pay attention. That's what we need from you. And that way, you are, you're part of my, my ability to measure what's going on. The, 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 the regulators can't be there every second of the day. They can't be asking these questions every second of the day. We need your help. And I, I, so I think this idea of 100% uh, insured deposits is a horrific idea. Um, now, let's see. Money is about, I, by my estimate, four times larger than it was when we went to 250. So, so clearly, I think that number should be larger. But 100%, I think, is, would, would be a horrible mistake. And I know, Joseph, you've made some thoughts on that as well, comments. No, you're exactly right. I think that it's good to have these market mechanisms, these feedback mechanisms, where we can right. uh, basically use market forces to, uh, to police actors to make sure that these banks are behaving well. If we were to guarantee everything, then what would happen is that you would have banks go and do you know, a whole, whole bunch of risky investments. And that way, if the risky investments turn out well, then great. You know, um, I'm going to make a lot of money. But if uh, they don't turn out well and the bank goes bust, then we'll have the Treasury bail out all the depositors and make them whole. And it's it's kind of like the another version of, you know, the upside gets captured by the people who own the banks and the downside is the downside is kept, is uh, paid for by, by the public. We don't want that to happen. And I think a bigger question is that and this is so in the background, we, we've been talking about central bank digital currencies, right? That's all the rage in many parts of the country, uh, many parts of the world, especially in more, uh, let's say, um, authoritarian countries like the People's Republic of China. Now that we have these clamors for 100 percent insurance, we can see a stronger argument that people will make towards some sort of centralized central bank digital currency where we would all have checking deposits at the Fed rather than a commercial bank. So that, that's, a, that's something that could be unpopular as well. Help me understand something, which is a, a lot of folks saying about how turmoil in the banking system could cause banks to curb their lending. And when banks lend a lot, that's a you know inflationary, reflationary boom. And when they cut off credit, that's a you know deflationary, and it can lead to a recession. You know, Joseph, I think I first heard that idea when in our talk with Stephen Moran one day after the uh, emergency measures. Not going to use the term bailout of uh, FDIC Fed on on that Sunday. Uh, now I think it, it's become increasingly mainstream as it's so much so that the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell yesterday said, we actually expect or are we anticipating some contraction in credit. Obviously, Chair Powell watches forward guidance, right? <laughs> well, forward guidance watches, watches Jay Powell, that's for sure. <laughs> I think Steve, Stephen's point is, is really good and, you know, it was echoed by Chair Powell. So, um, so banks create money out of thin air when they make a loan or buy an asset. And so when banks create a lot of credit, we have more money in the in the 
in the financial system, more money means more demand for goods and services and for financial assets. And as you mentioned, Jack, that is uh, reflationary or inflationary. So, but whether or not a bank makes a loan is dependent upon many things. One, of course, you want to have profitable lending opportunities. You want to have people who are willing to borrow, but also the bank is concerned about its own health as well. Now, right after the great financial crises, the banks, even though interest rates were low and there was demand for loans by some sectors of the economy, there wasn't a lot of credit created because the banks were um, on life support. They were not in good shape. They were not in a position to continue to make loans. They had a lot of bad loans on their books already. Um, today, what may be happening is that some banks are concerned about their survival. Think First Republic, third, think Pacific West. They're afraid that they might have their, their depositors might run. And that fear might put a dampen on their willingness to create more loans. And so if that effect is prevalent, we can expect that uh, this panic in the regional banks could have a dampening effect on credit creation and thus economic growth. And Chirpao is thinking that might be equivalent uh, maybe to one or two rate hikes. No one knows. It's really preliminary, but it has an effect of dampening down the economy. And so that's part of the reason that he thought that maybe we don't need hike as much as, as, as he did before. Randy? It's already happening. I mean, it, that's what's frustrating about this is that, again, I'm ahead of, I get to see it way before everybody else does. And because I'm talking to my banks every single day, they're, they're lending less, you know, they're, or at least they're going to remain stable, which is not inflationary, right? As long as if you remain stable, you're not creating new money with new debt, new credit, whatever. And so the remaining stable, mo many are going to shrink. You know, they're going to say, you know what, we're not going to, you know, loan as much. We're going to go ahead and just, you know, and, and a lot of those loans are funded by borrowings. No, cash flow comes in. We're just going to pay off the borrowings because it's, we, you know, we're trying to manage, you know, this net interest margin. We're trying to maybe we're going to probably uh, grow the amount of cash we hold on demand because of these issues without flowing deposits. They know this. Powell knows this. He's not an idiot. And that's why I think he, you know, there's a delay to their efforts and they've done so much. I think that the, the recent hike yesterday, and even if I, I hope not one more, but I guess it doesn't matter at this point. I think it's just, hey, I want more room for when I do have to lower rates. I don't have to go to zero again. And, and that's where he got caught last time, right? Rates weren't, he was raising rates. And I, I forget how high it got, but it, well, I don't know if it was two or something like that. And, 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 and all of a sudden, a pandemic hits, boom, we had to go to zero, zero bound immediately. So I don't, I don't think he ever wants to do that again because it, 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 it creates a, 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 you know, a pricing dynamic that causes stresses as we're seeing. So I, you know, I'm just telling you, man, lending is, is already coming down. They've done their job. They just should be the adult in the room and, and just give it some time. Yeah, Joseph, how do you think this will impact the Fed's rate hikes if a contraction in credit, which is you know now anticipated, is equivalent to a rate hike or two rate hikes? So if a month ago, the terminal rate was kind of close to 5.75%, which would mean uh, three more hikes from here. If the contraction in credit is two rate hikes, that means only one more rate hike uh, in May, and then, and then we're good. How has your outlook on sort of the Joseph Wang Fed guy terminal rate changed? I think it it is impacted by this. And I think that, well, Chirpel probably is right. He just probably has to stay around here and hold it throughout the rest of the year. But I think another, I think we have to keep in mind something else as well, though. So monetary policy affects bank credit creation and so forth. But um, in the US, at least, 
credit is created by banks, but a lot of credit is also borrowed through the capital markets. And so one thing to keep in mind is that as the market right now is aggressively pricing in rate cuts and uh, the 10 year is down a lot, then you could see mortgage rates come down and half of mortgages are funded by investors in the capital markets. You can see borrowing rates by uh, big corporate borrowers come down as well. And, and that has a potential to reaccelerate the economy. So right now, I think that the terminal rate as the Fed projects in the stop plot about where we are now, honing it throughout the year makes sense. But I actually think my forecast would be tilted towards the upside since the US is a lot more capital markets driven. And right now, where there's volatility in the markets, but as that, as that shakes off, um, and as the market is convinced that rate hawks are coming, uh, we could see sectors in the economy begin to reaccelerate, like housing, which reaccelerated very quickly in January once mortgages got below seven percent towards five uh, percent. The Federal Reserve's discount window, as well as its BTFP bank term funding program, is getting a lot of uptake from banks. Banks posting collateral, getting that funding. As as a result, the bank's balance sheet is reaccelerating after the sort of slow fall of quantitative tightening. A lot of people saying this is quantitative easing, shadow quantitative easing. Uh, do, what do you guys think on that terminology? And then is this a net stimulus to the banking system in the same way that, oh yeah, if the Fed buys a trillion dollars of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, that's going to stimulate the financial markets and maybe the economy a, a little bit. Joseph, uh, what do you think? No, no, that's, I think that's totally wrong. That's actually seriously wrong. Um, so when the bank, when the Fed does QE, you can think of it as adding excess liquidity into the system and maybe someone somewhere takes that money and goes and buys risk assets. When the Fed is doing these emergency discount window lending, that's someone somewhere in the financial system not having enough cash and so desperate that they're taking out an emergency loan from the Fed. So that's not going to be money that gets uh, thrown into risk assets or, uh, you know, corporate bonds and stuff like that. So it's it's a negative sign. It, it's definitely not a positive sign for, for the market. And, but to be clear, I expect that to quickly reverse this week or next week, since it was very much a temporary measure connected with the desperate needs of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, probably a few other related banks as well. Thanks. Well, before I ask my, my last question, Randy, could you, like me, are a huge fan of Joseph's excellent book, Central Banking 101. Can you just tell us a little bit about how that book helped you already, you know, a, a yeah. professional well-versed in these matters, your understanding, in the same way that it helped me, who was uh, you know, more early on in my learning journey? There we go. Yeah. For, for, first, first, <laughs> there you go, Joseph. I had it right ready to Thank go you, Randy. By the way, let's just, you know, let's look how all the highlighting, the notes I took, I read it carefully. Um, you know, I will first say that, you know, Daniel Martino's book, you know, Fed Up is extremely important to read. And that was really fun because that was the first really look behind the curtain that I got um, from a Fed insider that opened my eyes up to a lot of things. And the number one thing I learned from Danielle was how little outside uh, government data the Fed was getting. And she came in there and said, wait a minute, having been on Wall Street, she's like, wait a minute, there's so much more data out there in the private sector. Why don't you get that? And that's what she started bringing into the Dallas Fed was this data that's out there and available and people willing to give it. And 
that was the big change she made inside. And, and it made me think, gosh, they, they only think in what they're given. They're not really going out to get more. What I learned from Joseph's book, and I'm just obviously just a highlight, and it's absolutely required reading for anybody in financial markets in business school, it'll probably be required reading, is I knew, I knew <laughs> that there was coordination between the central banks because you know the word transitory just doesn't automatically get used by a whole bunch of different central bankers. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of other unique words they've used. And if you read particularly uh, Bernanke's uh, "The Courage to Act," a, a very uh, a, a title for, full of hubris, he talks about they would spend almost comically we would spend days going back and forth with emails trying to choose the right word that meant something but could mean something else, and so. And, and all of a sudden, that word started getting used by all the other central bank leaders. I'm like, wait a minute, what? This is crazy. Well, what Joseph explained, I thought was the, it was amazing, was the New York Trading Desk, and you can modify this, Joseph, or correct it, is that you know probably the most powerful trading desk on the planet, maybe outside Goldman, that they would have you know new traders from other central banks come into that desk for a period of time. Uh, learn, be educated, and then go out back to their prospective central banks. And that that clearly demonstrates that there is a lot of coordination. There's a lot of communication. There's a lot of like, look, you do that first, then let me do this. And it, and it's all, and I think that's important to understand because then that forces us to have to watch other central banks commentary around the world because it's going to help us kind of get a feel for what's coming from our central bank. No, for sure. There is a lot of coordination, as Randy noted. It happens at all levels between central banks. They they chat with each other regularly. Uh, when I was on the Fed's trading desk, we would have periodic calls uh, with all the friendly central banks and just kind of chat of what's happening, what we're hearing, and so forth. A lot of information exchange goes on. And um, I also would uh, note that Danielle Dinar Martino's book, Fed Up, really good read. So what people don't often realize is that the information you get from the Fed, it's curated. If you are a journalist or if you are a bank, uh, you know, you, so a journalist has to say good things about the Fed to maintain access. A bank, well, they're regulated by the Fed, so they definitely have to say nice things. You you only get one side of the story and it's heavily curated. So people like Daniel DiPartino Booth and others who are no longer with the, the Fed, they are they're good sources of information about, about what happens there and yeah. how they work. And you, Joseph, are also an excellent source of information. My final question, Randy, I would love for you to square two views that you've had. One is about the hedging within the banking system that the regional banks with whom you have a lot of uh, uh, contact with, and you are you know, extremely qualified to, to share uh, views on this, uh, the degree to which they hedge, uh, and okay, yes, the very large banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they are fine with interest rate risk. They, they Don't worry about them, but the regional banks, they didn't hedge. And but then you also say that uh, you you are less concerned about this banking panic, and you think that you know folks on CBC and Bloomberg should be less panicky. Mm -hmm. So can you help me square those two views? Yeah, look, guys. You know, first off, let's make it clear: the GSIBs are not community banks. You you have to know that it drives me crazy that people, when they talk about banks, or if they, if they talk about bankers, they talk about oh Jamie Dimon you know, or Brian Moynihan, they're not, it's not the same thing, you know, at all. So first remove that. Next, you know, these, all these regional banks of any kind of size, 
Yeah, hedging hedging can mitigate, but but that's it. it. It's not a panacea, and so you know, as long as you don't have panic, uh, the perfect hedge for these guys on all their assets is consistent cash flow. And as long as they have that, they will ebb and flow with these interest rate movements and interest in inverted curves and all this stuff. It'll be fine. They're all fine. Yeah, and, and Joseph has mentioned this. Banks fail all the time. And and those are the bad actors. They they they, you know, like you know, look, in the end, IndyMac would have failed anyway because they went, you know, one one hundred percent as far as I know, but they won a lot subprime lending. And and they chose one segment of the market to get into. That was not a robust way to lend. And so I will tell you, most that's those are the guys who get in trouble when they make a bet on a, a certain sector. There might be, I don't even want to say somebody, you know, focused on one sector that could get in trouble and they exist and, and they'll have their own problems. The banking system on the whole is perfectly fine. I also think you got to put your money somewhere. You know, if you, you pull out from bank A, you put it in bank B, yeah. th- there's only so much room in the mattress. And, you know, I think most people understand that the mattress is not a good place. Here's the difference between, I think it's, it'll help people, between an equity guy and a bond guy. Equity people, when they look at investments, they first look to good. What is good? What's benefit? What's the yield? What's this? What's that? Good, 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 good. Then, okay, now let's see if maybe there's something bad. Bond guys are the opposite. They should be anyway. I've learned to go, what is bad? What if that's the first thing? Because there's one thing that has to happen with all my clients. They got to get all their money back. Okay. They have to get their money back. Banks are not in the business of taking bets. That's, you know, so a lot of them really don't do corporates anymore and things like that because there is a chance no matter how well rated they are, something happens and they don't get their money back. That's why most of it is in, uh, in, in on their investment portfolio anyway, is an agency government backed securities. So I just want you to know that's, that is my, my job is to do that. But I, I feel my role in FinTwit is to let me try to temper enthusiasm. Let me try to temper maybe those guys who are, the, are, are their book is equities, it's bank stocks and things like that. Well, let me try to temper that a little bit. At the same time, they're tempering my negativity or, or, or my worries. So I think the combination of us two, don't ignore either of us. I'm hoping that both of us allows you to sort of develop your own opinion. And, and that is why I, you know, pretty much anything I put on Twitter, I'm giving to my clients too. I'm saying, look, here are the things I see. So be careful, you know, pay attention. Right. So just to uh, conclude, Randy, you were saying that the somewhat widespread perception that Silicon Valley Bank did a bad job of managing its interest rate risk and that that is an outlier in the banking system. You are saying that with regard to regional banks, that is somewhat untrue, correct? I, I, no, actually, what I'm saying is I don't think Silicon Valley's problem was interest rate risk at all. It, 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 anything they could have done, it, it would only been a mitigation. Based on what I've seen on their por- underlying portfolios, I can't, I, I can't see their loan portfolio. Maybe there's disaster there. I kind of doubt it there too. I think, I think the whole Silicon Valley Bank was a, is a very strange happening with a very tight community of, of depositors who are very close. And I kind of feel like Goldman kind of made a mistake in going, oh, I guess we got to raise capital because we're losing deposits. And they sort of gave information to all their depositors that they went to first to say, hey, we're going to do a capital raise. And they presented the idea of like, what do you mean we got losses in, in the portfolio? I didn't know that. And now all of a sudden it's, it's a panic. So I, I just, I, 
I think that there's such an outlier situation, but as far as this, this simplicity of managing interest rate risk, no, that's an exposure all banks have, and it will be mitigated by cash flow. And maybe from now on, maybe they'll look at hedging, but it'll still only be in mitigation. But with time, they'll always be okay. Thank you, Randy. On Twitter, you are at, at the Bond Freak. Joseph, I'll give you the final word. No, I'm going to leave it with Randy. That was well said. And I really appreciate Randy coming on and chatting with us. We don't often get people with deep expertise in regional banking, and that's definitely what we need to learn right now. So thanks so much. Yeah, I hope to be back. We've, like I said, Joseph presented, you know, hours and hours worth of wonderful content in certain areas. So, you know, if you have me, we just, there's so many fun things that we can, uh, we can all teach each other. And I think that's good for your audience, Jack. Absolutely. I think we could do this conversation for five hours. We will have to leave it there. Uh, Randy, you are at The Bond Freak on Twitter. Joseph, of course, as everyone knows, you are at FedGuy12. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks, guys. It was wonderful. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.